You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Hey folks, welcome to Buildings on Air. This is the show where we talk about architecture from a different perspective with architects here in Chicago. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and this is our second episode, you guys. I'm, I'm really excited. We have a regular time slot here now on Lumpen Radio. So moving forward, you'll be able to hear the show first Saturdays of the month from 2 to 4 p.m. So we're still a baby show. It's only the second episode. Um, every episode better than the last. That's the motto. Um, hopefully we'll be a podcast soon also. Um, but on that note, we'll have some regular segments in future episodes. Uh, no promises, but keep your ear out for uh, Buildings on Air Movie Club and also a kind of experiment where we're going to mix lectures from important architects into a kind of Joe Frank-style experimental audio soup. Pretty excited about that one. Uh, our first ever regular segment, which will be coming up later, is our listener mailbag, where friends of the show, Ann Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, along with myself, will be answering your questions about buildings. Uh, Ann's out of town today, but Craig is here in the studio with us. Hey, Craig, how's it going? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Yeah, we'll be getting to the mailbag in about 20 minutes, uh, so there's still time to get questions in. You can send a question on Twitter, at uh, buildingsonair, at B-L-D-G-S on air, or go to lumpenradio.com and use the chat box on the right-hand corner of the page. Um, so please get those questions in. Uh, we've got a really good show planned for today. As with everything else, the election has really stirred up architects, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, we'll have Jeff Roberts on the show to talk about his firm's proposal for what we should do about our Trump Tower here in Chicago. Then in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Tom Jacobs, principal at Croyk and Sexton, and a leader in the organization Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change. Uh, and later on, we'll also be joined by Catherine Darnstadt of Leighton Design, a B Corp architecture firm here in Chicago that does some really incredible and uh, progressive uh, work. We'll be chatting with Tom and Catherine about what architects are doing to get politically organized and active right now. Uh, but before we get into all that, I kind of want to bring up some of the background conversations and ideas that I think will be uh, floating around uh, in the background of the episode. I just set the table here. Um, First, you know, I think when it comes to architecture and politics, um, architects actually do a pretty good job of being progressive and, and talking politics, right? I mean, if you go to an architecture school, social and environmental responsibility is kind of a given, um, perhaps with a few notable exceptions, uh, maybe like Peter Eisenman or someone like that. But nevertheless, uh, architects are really bad at actually doing anything with these ideas, I think. Um, we've not played a real substantial role in actually changing power dynamics and politics in any substantial way in the last few decades, or, or maybe ever. Um, so my question here is, is how do architects actually make a change in big and meaningful ways? I have some ideas about this. I just wrote a piece about it. But I'm very curious to hear what some of today's guests think. And I think some of the questions in our mailbag will kind of speak to this. Uh, the other thing that's kind of floating in the background here is the um, absolutely boneheaded AIA statement that the CEO of the AIA, Robert Ivey, put out after Trump's election. So for those of you who might not know and who might not be architects, the AIA is the American Institute of Architects. It's by far the largest professional architecture organization in America. It has about 90,000 members. And the most active members and leaders of the AIA are kind of the upper management of architecture offices by and large. Um, their statement, I'll, I'll read it here, uh, it's a pretty short statement. 
the AIA and its 89,000 members are committed to working with President-elect Trump to address the issues our country faces, particularly strengthening the nation's aging infrastructure. During the campaign, President-elect Trump called for committing at least $500 billion to infrastructure spending over five years. We stand ready to work with him and with the incoming 115th Congress to ensure that investment in schools, hospitals, and other public infrastructure continue to be a major priority. We also congratulate members of the new 115th Congress on their election. We urge both the incoming Trump administration and the new Congress to work towards enhancing the design and construction sector's role as a major catalyst for job creation through the American economy. This has been a hard-fought, contentious election process. It is now time for all of us to work together to advance policies that help our country move forward. So that is a quote from uh, AIA President Rob, or AIA CEO, sorry, Robert Ivey. Those are not my words. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would deny that spending money on infrastructure in schools and hospitals is a, is a bad thing. Um, but the thing that got people really mad about this letter uh, what wasn't was what wasn't on it, and the kind of general tone. Um, people were upset that uh, there was no word at all about sort of the uh, environmental policies of the incoming Trump administration. Um, there wasn't any real talk about the urban policies uh, and the fact that they ran a whole campaign uh, hinged on law and order um, and spending money on a kind of police state as opposed to uh, affordable housing or social infrastructure. And they also didn't give any kind of even token reassurances that the AIA, as the biggest group of architectural professionals, would defend and advocate for the marginalized communities within architecture or the marginalized communities that we try to serve. So uh, keep that in mind as we go forward with the show. It's certainly going to be in the back of my brain, and uh, we'll be chatting much more in depth with Tom and Catherine about those things later. Uh, but for now, and still on a somewhat related note, I'd like to introduce Jeff Roberts. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? It's doing, going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we, we brought you today uh, to, to tell us about this really hilarious project that, you, uh, that you've gotten published. It's been, it's been floating around on Twitter, um, and maybe, maybe folks have seen it, but maybe you could just give us a kind of big overview of the project. Describe it for us, please. Well, after the election, uh, you know, we felt a need to have some therapy in our office. Everybody was feeling um, a bit tormented and tortured for the, the outcome of the election. Uh, for uh, the, the last 10 years, I've been, I've been catching the, the L train at Randolph and Wabash, and they built the Trump Tower, which Adrian Smith building is it's a fine building. I had no problems with it. I was always questioning why it hadn't been defaced with a Trump sign. And then in 2014, it was defaced with a Trump sign, a mega Trump sign, right. 20 it's feet huge. tall. You can't miss it. It's at eye level. It's not even it wasn't they weren't even generous enough to move it up toward the top and be tactful about it. So every night I have to look at this. It's just dead right in my, my sights. I can't avoid it. So it's, uh, it's something we've thought about and made jokes about it for a long time. With the outcome of the election as a, as a kind of an element of therapy, I suggested that we charrette this and we kind of generate some ideas and see how we could mute the sign, uh, give the citizens of Chicago a little bit of a break from this <laughs> thing that we have to look at. And uh, after mulling over a number of scenarios, which be, would be fixed to very big, permanent architecture, it didn't seem like that was the direction we needed to go, we kind of settled into something simple. Uh, and, it, and it became a folly uh, in its expression. And we looked to a number of things. As, as the dialogue went through the charrette, 
uh, we we settled on a uh, a series of four pigs, painted gold as helium balloons, and they would float in the the visual parameters of the Trump sign. Now we chose these for a number of reasons. One of which uh, one of our colleagues in the office had had mentioned the um, the 1977 Pink Floyd album uh, Animals, and of course the Pink Pig from from that. Went, okay, let's see what we could do with a pig. Uh, so from that point, we just leveraged up. It was uh, that album in itself is a great thing to look at, and everybody can interpret it the way they want to. It was based on George Orwell's uh, Animal Farm, so there's a lot of uh, anti-bourgeois uh, language and ideas in that. But the intro uh, piece is uh, Pigs on Wings 1, and it closes with Pigs on Wings 2. It's also about love and reconciliation with those two songs. So there's, there's good and, you know, there's a lot to think about in that if you take that angle. But that's just one small part. We also felt that the, you know, the inflatable pigs were uh, representative of you know, the flying pigs. You know, that was kind of Trump's uh, perceived chances of actually winning the presidential election. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly didn't believe it was going to happen and refused to believe it was possible. Uh, and, of course, there were the, the pig, Miss Piggy statements made during the election, some of the kind of hatred language uh, that was put out there. The number of pigs, four pigs for each year that will have to endure the presidency of Mr. Trump. Uh, the direction of the pigs, they're, they're flying toward Washington, D.C., of course. Uh, there was also the notion of um, the gold-colored pigs. And there was a, an article that we had read months ago uh, where Mr. Trump had referenced his gold-encrusted interiors as comfortable modernism. <laughs> and we thought gold was an appropriate choice to paint these pigs. And then finally, it was just about rational design. We felt that every move we made had a reason for it. There was nothing subjective about it. And this was the ultimate contrast to the way things have rolled through the primaries, to the presidential election, to the ultimate win. I mean, there was, it was just chaos. There was no rationale to what was going on. There was no good thinking logic. And, and we felt we contrasted that dramatically with, with that effort. Yeah, it's kind of striking how uh, something, you know, you, you, you went through all the reasons why, why you chose the pigs, how many, et cetera. And it's, it's striking how rational design is kind of a satire at this moment, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> yeah. which says something maybe. Um, yeah, I, I think, can you maybe talk about the reception it's received and, and some of, some of the, the reactions? So, so yeah, we kind of gave birth to this thing, and we, you know, we obviously used some technology to render it and overlaid it in Photoshop and created these you know, lovely images. And then we looked at it, and we thought, hey, that was fun. Let's, let's send it out in the world and see what happens. And so we sent it off to some architecture critics around the country. Uh, we put it out on Twitter. We put it out on Facebook. We put it out in a number of different areas. We blasted it out to emails where we had contacts to certain individuals, shared it with other professionals. And, and the response has been quite, a, quite it's been satisfying to hear other people. We're commiserating, really. I mean, we're, we're trying to find our community. And this is what we can do with our talents is we can design and try to do things that kind of acknowledge the problems we're confronting. But the feedback has been good. We've gotten comments that were, uh, you know, from some of the great architecture critics essentially saying, this is fantastic. I can't wait to see the wall design. Is that going to be based on Pink Floyd's wall? Like, wait, that's, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, sure. we got to go there. 
but it was received. And we've also seen some some rather aggressive comments coming back at us as well that that are very harsh. And it it makes you it makes you kind of revisit some of the harsh languages that was used in the election and the things that we're fighting against. Sure. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I mean, I love this. Uh, what did you call it? Comfortable modernism? Is yes. that the word that Trump yeah. used? <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, even even just as, as a, we're a bunch of architects sitting in a room right now, um, and I'm just wondering <laughs> if you can talk about how, how you feel about Trump's architectural taste generally, uh, having well, s- kind of studied this building and looked at it. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with Adrian Smith's building. Uh, I think it's probably... Trump's nicest piece yeah, of architecture. it's definitely the best yeah. Trump Tower. The, the, uh, the rest of them are very um, budget design driven. I mean, I'm not going to beat up on the architects that do this. I think there's been some uh, some writings out there that have, but they're not municipal statements. They're not things that they're not projects that give back uh, for the investment that's put into them. They don't have longevity in terms of their stylization, uh, and. The New Yorkers know it well. From the day Trump Tower went up, it was just a benign tower. It just says, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm glossy. I'm big. But it's never going to – nobody's going to regale in that building and write prominently about it, and it's not going to hold up in history, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case with most of the buildings, the development properties that, that he's done. You aren't going to see them showing up in major architectural magazines uh, of any type. So – you know, it is surprising that we have one of the better ones here. And then it was defaced in 2014. <laughs> right. So, Right. And I, I think I, I remember the spat well when the sign initially went up. Um, I think Blair came in, was ultra critical of it. And uh, I think Trump's response was, in the future, people will remember it uh, like they remember the Hollywood sign. Oh, oh. Uh, it's acidic. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a little bit of a frightening prospect. Um, well, what about the designer's comment, which was, I had nothing to do with right, this. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, are there any plans to uh, to realize the flying pigs? You know, I, we'll see where the, uh, the energy goes on this. I mean, it's certainly a folly. It's something that could be put up for a, a period of a few weeks in the summertime. We c- it could be done on a number of levels. I had some some practical comments come back at us that were saying, oh, you know, you can't. It'll get in the way of the riverboats. We could work around that. Sure. You know, you can, there's, there's a number of ways this could be realized. So uh, we'll see where the momentum takes us, and we'll, we'll kind of gauge it uh, week by week from here. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for, for joining us um, and telling us about this wonderful project. You can look uh, up photos. I think uh, we maybe posted some to the Lumpen Radio Facebook. Is that right? Yeah, cool. You can check them out there. Um, and now we're going to take a little bit of a break, um, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. So now we have our, our first ever regular segment. It's the mailbag. So we, we put out a couple calls for questions, um, and we, we've got a lot of really good ones here. They span a really wide range. We have some like really intense sort of theoretical, intelligent questions. Um, my friend Hamza asked, are hot dog sandwiches? Not going to address that. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, we've got a little bit of everything. And Craig Reschke uh, here from Future Firm to help us answer them. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Craig. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, yeah. I'll have some some good answers. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I I'm I gotta admit, I'm kind of at a loss about whether to start with um, a really serious question or a really funny question. Um, I think you know maybe based based on a, a, our conversation with Jeff Roberts, we can ask this question from uh, James Murray out in Boston. 
do you think Trump will build a presidential library? And which firm do you think he'd select to build it? Absolutely. I think that he will He will build a, a presidential library. I think it will be a tremendous, the best presidential library ever. <laughs> um, Very good. It'll be huge. What, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. What firm would build it, though? That's uh, That's a tough question. Because I feel like it's got to be someone that's willing to use gold, right? Yes, it's got it's got to be gold encrusted. Yeah, I don't know who's like who's is there a gold architecture firm these days? Was there ever one? Oh, I'm sure, but it's got to be someone you know that's like cutting edge too, right? Like it can't. <laughs> it's got to be someone that's in the news that he's seen around, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was also put to me as a challenge to not name uh, Patrick Schumacher during this show, but it's uh, hard hard to avoid mentioning his name. For those of you who don't know, Patrick Schumacher is a British architect um, uh, who works for Zaha Hadid Architects, and he put out some really, um, uh, I don't know, controversial statements about um, how public space should be privatized, everything should be privatized, um, super sort of like uh, Ayn Rand, kind of libertarian utopia. Um, he might be a good candidate for the Trump Library. Perhaps. <laughs> if, if he's still uh, speaking in those terms, I've heard that there's uh, big protests happening outside of uh, his office these days. So Yeah. <laughs> um, so here, let's, uh, let's move on to another question. Um, we have some questions from some eight-year-olds uh, that were submitted. <laughs> uh, one is, how do they put windows in? How do they put windows in? Windows come as a, as a single unit. Um, it usually takes one or two guys to lift it, lift it into place. Um, and then you, <laughs> you nail it in with, uh, with either a nail or a screw. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I think it's, it's totally uh, more simple than one would imagine. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the other precious question we have here is how many bricks are in one building? <laughs> I've, I've, this is actually something that I've thought about. Like how many could, is there a way that we could start counting the number of bricks like in a neighborhood, in a city, like in the U.S.? It seems like some sort of really interesting counting problem. Uh, I don't know. I think in the thousands. Right. I mean, right? It, yeah, it's many, like many. what is the, the magnitude of order? I, I mean, I think... Uh, what I love about questions like this is uh, there's kind of deeper, uh, deeper theoretical holes you can go down, even from like a kind of simple question. Um, you know, my friend Shoda, he always talks about um, uh, the land ethic and uh, basically how for every brick, right, there's a hole in the ground somewhere. There's a corresponding hole in the ground. Um, so I think like a, a question about how many bricks there are kind of can be connected to like a broader set of ecological concerns and, and mostly it's just adorable it's like an, i don't know <laughs> absolutely well and i think there's a lot of interesting projects happening with brick and reusing brick in uh in chicago right now like tom kelly's aesop store is all reused brick um amanda williams is doing a, a kind of um some sort of project teaching children how to uh build walls out of bricks mm -hmm. so it's uh, an interesting topic to kind of think about these material flows. Right. And I think I, I recall hearing somewhere that reclaimed bricks in Chicago are actually more expensive than new bricks. Yeah, because the, the Chicago common brick that you see on the side of um, most buildings, like in Chicago, there's always the face brick on the front mm -hmm. and then the common brick on the side, which at the time was kind of thought of as more of a utility brick or like a cheap brick. Um but they don't make them anymore, and I think that they've come to like be known as quite beautiful. 
um, like nice coloring and not very much detail. Um, yeah. So somewhere there's someone shipping mortar off bricks and making a buck. Right. And, and like almost certainly counting how many bricks they need. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, here's a, here's another one. Um, uh, recently some IIT students posted a note about curriculum reform at the college. Uh, specifically they wanted education to be more like practice or at least, uh, architecture school to prepare them better for the jobs market. Um, is this really the goal of architectural education and why are students so eager to make school more like work and not the other way around? Oh my God, I have no idea, but I think that's a, that's a terrible idea. Uh, school is the one time that you get to kind of experiment with new ideas, think about uh, what kind of architecture you're interested in, and uh, every, every practice is so different that it's hard to say like what, what best would prepare someone for practice. And no one wants, no, no firm that I know of wants a student to come in with a portfolio of like, here is this amazing bathroom layout that I did, which is what they're, what they're probably <laughs> going to be doing on their first day. Uh, they want someone that has a kind of creative agenda and makes beautiful drawings and, uh, and thinks, about, thinks about things holistically, not... Uh, they certainly don't want drafting drones. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this, this is the, the, the pleasures of automation is we have drafting drones to do the work for us. Um, I, but, I mean, I, I guess I have to uh, encourage them to, to be more... I like hearing about students being pushy against their administration, asking, asking what's happening with their curriculum. I just wish they had a more a more radical agenda than than becoming better practitioners. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I agree. Uh, what what do you think the more radical agenda would be? What would be your preferred radical agenda? Um, I think looking at material flows, where things come from, uh, something like a more radical interpretation of sustainability. Like, what does this really mean? I think. Uh, Something more about practice. We were talking about the AIA later, which or earlier, which I know is going to be a topic on the show. But I think the uh, kind of reinventing how we um, how we position our profession, mm-hmm. um, because in many ways I think the AIA is this kind of antiquated uh, method of um, architects gathering together. Um, and it'd be great to see schools reinventing how we do how we do contracts, how we do um, lobbying things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a novel suggestion, <laughs> right? Because it's like you're still taking practice seriously, um, but you're not uh, doing it for jobs training, right? Well, I think, I mean, maybe the best thing for those students to do would be to, to not read anything about architectural practice and think to themselves, how would, I, how would I make a building? How would I practice in the world without any of the kind of preconditioning that happens as soon as you start reading AIA contracts or talking to someone that's been practicing in the field for 50 years. Like mm-hmm. you may, your most innovative ideas kind of come out of uh, being naive. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's really good advice. <laughs> um, so I, I also delved into the, the dark corner of the internet here uh, <laughs> for some questions. Um, so from Yahoo Answers, and uh, wow, that's uh, quite a sight. Uh, here's one from Trisha. Should I pay the $1,200 to have my vinyl plank flooring installed or try to do it myself? By the way, I am not a handy person, question mark. <laughs> pay to have it installed, definitely. It will save you time. It will uh, let the professionals do it. <laughs> yes, I, 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 yes I, I'm going to echo that advice. Um, 
And Although then, I guess if you if you try to install it yourself, send us a picture so we can see because we I mean we just said youthful naivete right <laughs> ends up with uh, maybe more interesting designs. So, yeah, so maybe she'll find a way to reinvent so, final floor. Maybe you can be a, a contractor for Craig and I. <laughs> um, and then here, here's another question: Is this a load bearing wall? Question. There was no picture, by the way. It's just, is this a load bearing wall? If so, will it support a fifteen hundred to seventeen hundred pound aquarium? Mm. That seems like uh, a question that the AIA would recommend that I not answer over the radio <laughs> without more information. Uh, I don't know. Put the aquarium on it and see what happens. Yeah. Test, testing to failure. That's what, that's what I think, too. I mean, that's like uh, it's not a good advice for us to give. <laughs> Let's like indemnify ourselves now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, don't try this at home. Right. But 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 absolutely try it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was thought I thought of uh, Hunderwasser who I always want to call Hefeweizen for some reason. I know that's the beer. But uh, I, was, I was thinking about Hunderweiser and the, uh, he calls it the Moldest Manifesto. And in the Moldest Manifesto, um, he talks about how everyone should be building their own buildings. And, uh, you know, some of them might fall over because, uh, you know, people aren't experts in buildings. Um, but buildings usually creak before they fall down. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a warning. <laughs> that's right. And then uh, uh, and they'll do better the next time. So um, that's that's my aquarium advice. <laughs> well, and maybe, okay, now that I'm thinking about this, we should we should do some math, right? Okay, if it's an aquarium, how many pounds did they say it was? Uh, 1,500. 1,500. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, so they should measure the aquarium, right? Uh-huh. Length times width, see how many square feet it is, then divide 1,500 by the amount of square feet, to see how many uh, how many pounds per square foot, yeah, and then check with their local building code and see what the um, the floor load is, and if it's if it's more than the the anticipated uh, floor load, then don't do it. If yeah. it's less, then you'll probably be in a safe zone. There we go. Real practical advice about aquariums, folks. Absolutely. This is uh, educational programming at its finest. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, what would be a good rule of thumb, like a hundred pounds a square foot, something like along those lines. Uh, no, the uh, the Chicago Code is. Um, oh, is it like now? S- now I'm going to say something, and this is going to come back to bite me uh, <laughs> much later when you someone listens, you don't have to, to say this, anything. listens to this yeah. podcast. <laughs> it's 110 pounds per square foot, uh, live and dead load for uh, Chicago decks which are much uh, higher load than um, typical interior spaces because of the many decks that collapsed around Chicago sure. um, in the past couple of decades. Um, so I think it's, I think it's in the like sixties or something. Yeah. 60, about 60 pounds per square right. foot. So probably I'm going to guess that you should get a structural engineer, uh, whoever, the, whoever this is who asked the question. So uh, now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the mailbag in a few minutes. We are back with Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio, and we're still, we're still doing our mailbag here with Craig Reschke of Future Firm. And over the break, we are just talking about Patrick Schumacher. Um, again, I'm just totally bailing on my promise to not bring this guy up, uh, <laughs> but, but we were talking about it on the break. And the question here, uh, submitted by Skyler from Chicago, is should Patrick Schumacher be taken seriously? He is hardly alone with his hard right rhetoric, and the belief that democracy is essential appears to be waning across the Western Hemisphere. 
How many times can we afford to be wrong about whether others will think someone is right? So, and maybe, maybe uh, I, I think I gave a little bit of an intro on Patrick Schumacher, but maybe you could uh, recap some of, some of him for us, Craig. <laughs> well, uh, Patrick Schumacher is now the, uh, the leader of Zaha Hadid Architects since her death uh, in when was that six like six months ago? It's quite I, yeah. Maybe she was, she was another figure claimed by twenty sixteen exactly. Um, and he, I think, since kind of taking the helm there, has become much more vocal about uh, his his political beliefs. But it, it's unclear to me whether he actually believes what he's saying or if he is just trying to be a provocateur because he he claims he seems to claim both. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he uh, he has this kind of libertarian, I guess, view of uh, I don't. I yeah. mean, you know, you know more more I, well, about his politics. Than, yeah, than and I, I, do. I think he uh, he's very interested in using computers to um, kind of take out uh, subjectivity to remove subjectivity from architecture, and and it's kind of. Uh, a transparently bad political project because he, he, he basically puts forward this idea that we can make everything data and we can use this data to make a city that's somehow perfect and somehow totally objective and fulfills all of the needs of economy and, and, and people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this is kind of a, a basic fallacy, right? I mean, it's presuming that computers are objective. And, and he seems like a really smart guy, um, at least he talks like he's a smart guy. He uses uh, dime store words. Um, and uh, I, so I don't know how he can overlook something like that. But I guess that's the question, right? Is, is Should we even be taking him seriously at all? Um, does he actually have any kind of power? Or is it the kind of architectural media that exists that's pumping this guy up because he says something outrageous, which is maybe our own kind of analog to what's happening uh, in politics in a larger scale yeah well i guess i would like to i would like to think that all all words have power right i think somewhere people are hearing what he's saying and either rejecting it or buying into it but just like the the trump presidency i think that the uh these these things that start as what we think are provocations or just kind of radical fringe thought can very quickly become become the mainstream yeah um so absolutely i think that his words have power um, and I think that he, I think that he, because he thinks that he's playing this role of the provocateur, that he is kind of getting people to talk about these issues and he doesn't know whether he believes them or not is like the latest quote that I saw from him. Right. Um, it's, uh, I think he needs to kind of more carefully consider what, what, how he's framing this argument and what, um, what effects it might have on the, um, the practice of architecture, like especially just at at his firm, like in his immediate worldview, right? Right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think if he's going to be a provocateur, um, it's a really it's a really bad thing to provoke someone into just having to reaffirm that public space is valid, right? Like, right. I mean, if he's actually a provocateur, I'd, I'd rather he provoke about like more like things that we already uh, aren't in consensus about. <laughs> well, and I, it seems that he doesn't. It seems he has not done a lot of in-depth research about the the kind of vision that he has for the future. He seems to think about it superficially, I mm. guess, is is my impression. Yeah, which uh, I guess relates to a Yahoo Answers question that, <laughs> that I pulled up at the last second here. Anyone else want to see one of Howard Rourke's buildings in real life? 
no, I no no interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but let's let's move on from Patrick Schumacher. Um, Shoda uh, Shoda in New York City asks, "Who who does architecture love, and who loves architecture?" He's kind of a hippie. Like think about it. like who does architecture love, man? I mean, don't we all love architecture? I love walking down the street, like seeing buildings around me, being in the world. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> with the, I think the more Archi- architecture, I think itself loves people with money. They can, they can sure. make more of it, or or other architects. Maybe um, this might be an answer too. <laughs> um, and then Shoda also asked, like, this is maybe a more serious question. I think it's really poignant and pertinent. Um, who should take responsibility for the failure of the discipline to define its own political ideals, uh, as the old avant-garde or environmentalists or even tech companies would do? Um, in, independent of the immediate catastrophes that we momentarily always coalesce around. Is it the critics? Is it the professionals? Is it the academy that's under pressure to move fast with the times? <laughs> um, and then he says, it's not my baby, <laughs> or is it? So, yeah, who should take responsibility for the failure of the discipline to define its own political ideals? Has there been a failure, do you think? I don't. I don't think there's been a failure. I think that that's. I or I think that there has. If there has been a failure, it is. Uh, it is because the profession or the discipline itself is set up to be only a series of failures. Right. By failing, we try. We try new things. Right? Yeah. And we can't. It, it's. I'm, it. I'm not sure that casting, <laughs> casting blame on professionals or critics or. I mean, we all. I think it's it's on all of us. Yeah. But I, I guess I don't. It's not necessarily something that I that keeps me up at night. I think that we're we're rolling we're rolling forward. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's it's maybe a question about um, the actual political action and agency is, is lacking? I mean, because I, I, like I said in the beginning of the show, I mean, I, I think we actually do a pretty good job of talking about politics and architecture on the whole. Um, it's not perfect, but I, I, I don't think it's an absent part of the discourse. Right. Um, but it's it's the enacting it, which is really difficult. Well, because when when we enact architecture, we when we bring architecture kind of off of the drawing boards out of out of uh, just architectural discourse, it starts involving all of these other. Uh, professions, people, systems, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, maybe that's where architecture is, needs to work is kind of bringing in contractors, politicians, um, all of the other players building the built environment, um, find a way to kind of bring them into our discourse. Because in some ways, I think the architectural discourse is, uh, is kind of opaque sometimes, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really opaque, and I, I mean, I think uh, we we've lost sight as a discipline of um, you know something that maybe maybe a Gramscian sort of definition of politics, right? Which is to say that that politics is actually um, inserting and in, uh, yourself into and, and changing uh, power relationships in, in institutions and in organizations, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, our discourse doesn't really focus on that a whole lot. Yeah. Well, I also wonder if the, uh, I wonder if we need to stop thinking so much about the architectural discipline as a single voice, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's uh, just, 
with using the Robert Ivey's comment as as an example, I'm sure there are some AIA members in one of the rural red states that is was completely happy with his statement. So yeah. I think I think maybe we need to stop organizing ourselves so much around disciplines um, and think more about um, organizing ourselves around kind of consensus of, of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivan Illich uh, in Disabling Professions, I think, talks like quite clearly about how the profession, the professionalization of, um, of doctors, lawyers, architects is really about kind of um, protecting one's uh, economic future, mm-hmm. right, and controlling controlling that that right. discipline. Uh, so I think if we could find a way to let let go of some of that control, uh, yeah, it might be might be helpful for architecture as a whole. No, and indeed, this is probably the most successful thing that the AIA actually does as the uh, is is go lobby, and when they're going to lobby. They go specifically to defend uh, the Practice Act, which, for those of you who don't know, that's the it's literally a set of laws that governs um, architectural practice. Uh, every state has one, and it defines architects and and who an architect can be. It defines how licensure works, et cetera. And their kind of whole lobbying mission is really centered around making sure that. Um, other professionals don't have similar practice acts, right, and don't encroach on the space of architecture, which is really uh, fascinating on one hand, and it, it's kind of um, maybe maybe a little bit dangerous too. I, I mean, I, I just um, heard kind of with great someone with great zeal talk about how they were able from the AIA talk about how they're able to defeat the. Uh, uh, interior designers who are trying to, you know, become a licensed professional body, um, and how because the, there, there's no license for it in the state of Illinois, mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of interesting and maybe something that as a non-architect who might be listening, uh, you might want to think about the next time you're going out to hi- hire an architect. Yeah, well, and I think especially from my point of view, the Practice Act has not has not done so much to make architecture a more valuable profession mm-hmm. right there are not there are not people knocking down my door saying oh my god i need an architect and here's here's right. a pile <laughs> of cash right um contractors individuals they all find kind of ways to get it get around it right um, so I'm, I'm not sure it's doing us any good and we talked earlier about uh youthful naivete like mm-hmm. maybe the maybe all, allowing some of that into the profession would would bring us um kind of more interesting results. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think uh, here's another related question, uh, also from James Murray out in Boston. Uh, why is the profession lagging so far behind in the desires and beliefs of the emerging academic discipline? Uh, as practice acts as a vehicle between these two realms of architecture, what would you say is the future of our practices in a world where the discipline isn't largely interested in building and the profession doesn't seem to care about difference? as in sort of differences mm. differences between city and countryside maybe or uh, um, differences in people well architecture is a is an incredibly long mm-hmm. process right i think so it, i mean just to go back to trump tower cuz we've been talking about it i think the the design process for that building was was many years the construction process was many years it takes much longer for architects to get something from the the um, 
the kind of academy out into the pro- profession and then from the profession into uh, into built works, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, whereas I think other creative disciplines, um, music, graphic design, industrial design, they are like iterating and putting things out and experimenting much more quickly than than architects are. Mm-hmm. Maybe that <laughs> maybe that doesn't directly answer the question, but gets gets around <laughs> it a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Um, no, I think I think that answers. I uh, I also have a good question here from Steve Steve Badowskis of Bernice's Tavern fame. Uh, he asks, "How tall is the shortest building in the world?" Um, and I I I did some research on this question, Craig. I hope you'll forgive me. I, uh, I couldn't find this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find uh, what you know. I, it would be a really difficult question to answer, but I did find something on the world's littlest skyscraper. Uh, which is a building in Wichita Falls, Texas. It's 40 feet tall, and uh, it's called the Newbie McMahon Building. Um, you should totally look it up on Wikipedia. Um, I think uh, there, there's a really uh, uh, excellent story about how he swind- this investor, McMahon, swindled um, all of his fellow in- adv- investors by making architectural plans for a 480-inch tall building, um, but he told them it was a 480-foot tall building, and he got them to sign off on all the plans. Um, so when he built the the tower, uh, everyone was like, "Dude, what? This building is four stories. You promised us a, a skyscraper." And um, they sued him, and he won because they signed off on the drawings. So uh, there you go, 1919 Wichita Falls, Kansas. It's still there. You can go visit. So that's the world's uh, shortest skyscraper. I would actually argue that the world's shortest skyscraper is the, uh, I can't think of the name of it right now, but it is is an experimental borehole in Russia where they basically just drilled a couple miles into the earth to see what they could find, right? (laughs) Right. So (laughs) it's kind of an inverse skyscraper, is that what you (laughs) Yeah, I think... I mean, as uh, uh, I think that human development is both building up and building down, mm-hmm. um, and we've dug out uh, just like we talked about. Wherever there's a brick, there's a hole somewhere else. I right. think we've <laughs> we've we've dug deeper than um, than we've been able to pile things up. Yeah. Uh, here's a here's another question: Why are American buildings so ugly? Sorry, dear Americans, but your buildings are ugly. I'm from Germany, but I live in the U.S. now. Even in world-famous cities like New York or San Francisco, it seems like any type of buildings lack aesthetic appeal. When you visit Munich or Berlin or Paris or London or any major cities in Europe, you can see gorgeous buildings that are architected in Renaissance-slash-Gothic style that emanate a sense of awe. I see very few buildings that are actually attractive. (laughs) Wow. Uh, American buildings look like a bunch of squares and triangles put together into a blob of ugliness. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what's up with that? Just because the Renaissance was started in Europe doesn't mean Americans can't embrace its style. Well, that's a problematic uh, sentence. Uh, So Craig, you've got a lot to answer for as an American architect. Uh, uh, Well, I think part of it has to do with timing, right? Mm -hmm. The, the kind of the state of architectural discourse at the time that, uh, many of the U.S. Uh, many U.S. cities were expanding um, is right now looked at as a kind of particularly dim era of architecture. Like which era? Like, like I'm, I'm thinking buildings of... Buildings from the 70s and 80s? Yeah, uh, like some early Adrian Smith buildings with, <laughs> with lots of like uh, 
bronze detailed doorways. And, right. Um, or like the, the, the Philip Johnson <laughs> Chateau skyscrapers that are kind of everywhere. We've yes. got one in Chicago. It's right by Sears Tower. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, when you look at, uh, I guess first I'll say that I don't think that there's ever an ugly building, right? Like every building has <laughs> something to say, like something we something we could think about, right? So maybe if you think it's ugly, yeah. you should try to look at it look at it differently. Um, oh man, that's like that's the best kind of like optimistic put down. <laughs> I love maybe. it. That's the tone I'm going for with buildings on air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, I mean, because when you when you look at uh, when you look at uh, cities around the globe, right? Kind of recent Dubai, right, mm-hmm. is filled with like super kind of innovative looking towers, right? Like twisting forms, things that are super tall, right? But they're they're innovative looking because they were built 10 years ago, not 40 years ago. Right. Um, but I think Sears tower is, is an amazing, uh, yeah. building for its time. I think like lots of, uh, uh, br- brutalisms making a comeback. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I know like our, our civic pride in Chicago tends to be cloying if, uh, if you're not from here, but this person just clearly hasn't been to Chicago. <laughs> It's uh you know we've got all kinds of great buildings yeah. from from the from the early twentieth century. What I, what do you think, Kiefer? <laughs> About why American what? buildings are so ugly? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I I guess I agree. I don't think they are, and I also have a tendency to really like ugly things. I mean, I think that there's there's something kind of uh, I don't know supremely weird and beautiful that that someone wanted to put something in the into the world, even if it's kind of uh, uh horrible <laughs> like it's it's kind of like that that question like why why did they do that uh is so amazing uh to to think about and and i think yeah in- incredibly edifying to me yeah. that that's the kind of beautiful that's where the beauty is um so that 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 would be my answer which which leads me into another question uh from steve and i thought this this was a really good question and i didn't totally get it at first but the question was um when architects use the word they, who are they talking about? And I think what he means by this is like when we're go- like when we're walking around buildings and trying to talk to people about what they should do or et cetera, we're always like, oh, well, they put in the molding like this or like, oh, they, they built all of these really ugly <laughs> buildings. Like uh, maybe talk, talk about they. Um, I think the, the answer might be kind of embedded into the question, but... I guess do do I hear this a lot? I'm like kind of racking my brain. Like when I'm walking around with other architects, do we do we use the term they, they more often than other yeah. other groups? I I don't know if we use it more than other groups, but it's definitely like a verbal tick that I've totally noticed. Mm. Where it's kind of like anything that happened in the in the past, right? Is always uh, there's this kind of like unknowable they that's always like doing architecture and building stuff. And um, and and we kind of like lump them into this this they thing. It's like very dehumanized in in, in a particular way. I mean, I would guess that it is because we have no idea <laughs> no idea who it was, right? Like, yeah. maybe maybe if uh, we're saying they put in the molding like that, we need to get out on a job site and see who's putting in the molding. Right. I right? mean, I think that's the that's my that was my takeaway. Right. Is like, oh man, like we shouldn't catch ourselves with this verbal tick here. 
and really like use that as an excuse to investigate further how we think about how we think about who who makes our buildings and who has made our buildings and who designed it before and well i think that this actually goes goes back again to like this question of uh learning about the discipline within uh within an academic setting or like being better professionals right mm-hmm. like if if we were all inventing the profession uh from the ground up yeah uh, we would know exactly who they is right, right. um so it's it's kind of a stand-in for I don't know, and I haven't figured this out yet. But, sure. But really, I think we should all be inventing these things so we so we know, right? Yeah. We're we're supposed to be the experts in in building. There should be no one we don't. Right. We don't understand what their role is. No more they. Yeah. So one. So maybe we need like some sort of thing to to catch each other when <laughs> when we're doing that, right? Right. Like a, a buzzer or something, yeah. a they buzzer. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so one last question to round us out for the mailbag, Craig. Uh, how do I hire a contractor? This question is from George V. out in New York. Oh, um, well, one, ask your architect. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, the, the answer is maybe find an architect first. Is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, actually, I think this is a good question because I, I think there's sometimes confusion over what kind of services an architect can offer. Mm-hmm. So, um I guess you said the question is from George. Mm-hmm. I would tell George, um, one, depending on what how big the project you're doing is, uh, go and, and find an architect that can, can help you out with it because architects also have many contractors that they like working with. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is a small project that has that you don't need an architect for, then I would certainly look for, talk to friends and relatives. If you know an architect, just ask them for, for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, contracting is, I think, a kind of opaque industry for someone that doesn't doesn't really know what's going on. So you want to know um, that someone that does know what's going on has has worked with this person before, yeah, um, and recommends them. So uh, one, I guess, talk to your architect. Two, make sure you have a recommendation. And three, call up some contractors. Tell them what you're doing. If they come out and give you a bid, that means they're interested in the job. If they uh, if they don't return your phone call or don't get back to you in a timely manner, then uh, run away as fast as, as fast as possible. <laughs> there we go. Some more good practical advice from Buildings on Air. Uh, Craig, thanks for joining us on the mailbag. I'm glad we're able to like hit such a wide range of topics. <laughs> I, think it's re- I hope it's not too disorienting, I, but I think it's really good to talk about this stuff kind of all mixed together because yeah, it's I part of all of our lives as hopefully architects. hopefully we can get into a groove if we keep <laughs> if we keep doing this. that's right yeah we'll we'll see you again next month and uh for now uh, we're gonna go to a break and we'll be back in a few minutes and uh with uh, our guest tom jacobs welcome back you're listening to wlpnlp chicago 105.5 fm lumpen radio uh, the show is buildings on air we're entering into our second hour here with our guest tom jacobs um, and Tom, thanks for coming. Uh, maybe you can tell us uh, uh, some more about yourself. I think we, we just kind of officially met for the first time the other day. Yes. Um, so, so who is Tom Jacobs? Well, thank you yeah. for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm an architect, a practicing architect here in Chicago, a principal with Crick and Sexton Architects. And I also um, am a teacher at the Illinois Institute of Technology in the College of Architecture, where I teach a seminar that's titled Good Design and Good Business. Sure, yeah. So you're in that professional practice strand. And uh, Tom, I'm so happy you're here uh, because you've kind of been 
very vocal in the last few weeks um, about a lot of the kind of issues that we now face with the election of Trump as a profession. Um, and that includes, we, we, pro we talked about the AIA statement earlier in the show. Um, so I, I wanted to talk first about the kind of response that architects advocate um, put out to, in response to the AIA national statement. Yes, so this is in response to Bob Ivey's statement on behalf of National AIA. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's well understood, or everybody agrees, that was a, a pretty grievous um, you know, misstep mm -hmm. um, in that it was very close to the election and it sort of focused in, I mean, it was a... a, a uh, an effort to be to become serv almost subservient right. without asking any questions or addressing any of the issues that had come up in the campaign. And so I'm involved with uh, Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change. This is basically a coalition of architecture firms who believe we need to, it's very urgent that we take action. And so when I read it, um, or when I first saw it, it was... Um, you know, rather striking, and we felt we had to basically make the point that we focus on it, which is, wait a second, so here we have a president-elect who has called climate change a hoax mm -hmm. by the Chinese and all, all the above. And so we issued a statement basically um, pushing back again, or, or, or joining the chorus of people that were, were very critical However, there also was a component in our statement who um, was cautioning people not to be too quick at burning down the AIA house. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I also a couple of years ago was a board member of AIA Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's one of those things when before I was involved in AIA, I was like the typical architect who said, what has our AIA ever done for me? What are they doing? They mm -hmm. collect all these fees. They sit in, in D.C. and what's going on? And my involvement with AIA certainly opened my eyes to how much they, in, in fact, do do. And so back to the statement of Bob Ivey, I have no question, zero, that that statement was well-intended in that this group in Washington has to, you know, they have to maintain relationships with people on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And it's not just relationships with politicians. When you go there, uh, which I've done, you actually, you know, you have to go knock on doors and meet with staff people who try to get you an appointment. And so this is a, like a, a almost a grassroots connection level effort where you have to be on good terms. And so I think the AIA National made a, a massive mistake but I know where this came from. It was well-intentioned, but it was terribly executed. And so, of course, you know, they, they paid the price. Right, yeah. And I, and I certainly don't blame his—I uh, don't, I don't think he was bad-intentioned, but, I, I mean, it really was a kind of boneheaded statement. And, and I think one thing you mentioned in the letter that I thought spoke pretty brilliantly to this point was confusing bipartisanship with uh, standing up for kind of basic values. Yes, absolutely. And this is, um, so back to AIA Chicago, my involvement there, because I was rather passionate about this, you know, the issue of climate change back then. And I always assumed that it was a no brainer that the AIA would take a more strong position on climate change. And of course, this is tied to this, the, the, the fact that we have 97% scientific consensus. Mm -hmm. 
that is not a partisan issue. Right. That is scientific consensus. And so I always thought, if we cannot make that distinction, if we all of a sudden now start to, to mix that and call that partisanship, then we're in massive trouble. I mean, that cannot be. And so um, it was pretty unsuccessful because the, because the AIA wouldn't be willing to sort of go there. Mm -hmm. And that had something to do with us trying it on our separate track, this Architects Advocate, where we have reached out directly to other architecture firms and basically asked them to join our coalition. And we, of course, make, you know, we push this distinction very hard and say, look, this is about our values. I mean, we, we teach this at IIT every day. Mm -hmm. We try to make students design better, more sustainably, more resource conscious, all of the above. And then on the other hand, if we cannot call out something like the, the lack of support for scientific consensus, then we're in massive trouble. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I think one of the other, speaking of teaching at IIT, um, I wanted to bring up the open letter that you wrote to the IIT community, which I think was beautifully, uh, beautifully written. Um, I got it. I'm part of the IIT community also as an adjunct. And um, you, you kind of spoke about this issue um, to various constituencies, IIT students, the members of the student chapter of the AIA, um, fellow IIT faculty colleagues, the dean, the provost, the president uh, of, the, of the institute. Um, so I, I'm wondering why specifically you wrote this letter to the IIT community. What was it about? Um, fill us in. Yeah. Well, I do have to say, just before I hit that send button, I was, you know, I wasn't sure whether that was going to be my last official act as a <laughs> faculty member. But um, the roots of the open letter have to do with, um, I mean, I was in shock for, let's say, a week after the election. And then um, went back, obviously, to teaching just as usual. And all of a sudden realized that like nothing had changed. Mm -hmm. And there was a little bit of discussion amongst some of the, the studio or the seminar members in my, in my group. But in general, you know, the, nobody was out with a sign or a banner or faculty when I caught up with them weren't really talking about that issue either. It was more like, oh, you know, internal academic politics. And so that really struck me. And I was like, is this is this an option? I mean, can we can we just keep going and not say anything in light of of some of these things? Mm -hmm. And so the um, the letter and the specific focus on trying to address all the constituencies had everything to do with my belief that one of the things we have to remind ourselves now in this very difficult situation is that at the very end it will start with us with us as individuals and what can I do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a significant difference. If you're the president of IIT, mm -hmm. those options are completely different than if you're a student mm -hmm. or a faculty member. But I do think regardless of that, there is, um, and this is actually something I talk in my seminar with students quite a lot. We, you know, we deal with issues of power, let's say. Mm -hmm. And the, the initial understanding of people when you talk about power is that it's formal power. You know, I need a title and I need to be recognized as that. And I actually think this is completely backwards mm -hmm. because, of course, having a title helps. Or if you have a uniform, that means something, of course. 
But what people don't realize is the importance of informal power. Mm -hmm. And this is most um, uh, most uh, extreme maybe with students who think, you know, like I'm nobody and the admin everything is set and I don't have any influence. I think the opposite is the case. If you are able to sort of break into the, the, the mentality of, no, this is my world and I can take action. Mm -hmm. And so in my letter in, to the students, I said uh, something like, please do not assume that the people here at the ac academy have any idea, any better idea of what's going on than you do. Right. They don't. And this is, you know, as a faculty member, this is sometimes, it, I, it, I feel this as a real challenge. Like they sort of, the students always look at you and they think you have all the answers. And guess what? We don't. And so I, I challenged them to take action, to, to organize themselves. Mm -hmm. We have, I have one particular member in my studio who is uh, a Muslim from Iran. Mm -hmm. He's scared. Yeah. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so, um, so there's those issues that I encourage them to organize themselves around. I challenged the AIAS in referring to the, the blunder that the national AIA, AIA had just made to you know, learn from that, be smarter than that, mm -hmm. try to get ahead of the issue with faculty. So I just sort of went through the list. And ultimately, um, there were some suggestions for the dean, for the provost, and also for the university um, president. And on, on his level, on the highest level, my question was, can you please let us know what the university stance is with regards to, um, you know, protecting some of these rights of our students and becoming a sanctuary campus and, right. and things like that. Yeah, uh, no, and I'm curious why you think maybe students weren't as active. I mean, I, I kind of have this, um, you know, maybe it's uh, at this point a kind of rose-colored glasses um, vision of, like, organizing on campuses in 1968 and, like, you know, real radical student activism and um, it's just not part of the culture at IIT, maybe. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's, it's kind of symptomatic of higher education generally? Do you think it's a cultural thing? Um, uh, do you think it has to do with the fact that IIT is an engineering school, so there's a different mentality? Um, I'm surely it's a complex issue, and all of those are partial answers, but um, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, very interesting question. Um, I... Um, just to your last point about IIT, is it because it's an engineering school? There is a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, I was struck in the response to Bob Ivey's letter how quickly, I think the Yale uh, School of Architecture students were the first yes. ones. Some dear friends of mine, yeah. Uh, which I thought, you know, I, I would love to teach at Yale <laughs> <laughs> with that kind of student. Uh, I think Harvard GSD was pretty closely behind. So I do think there's a difference, mm -hmm. you know, the, where people in places like this have a greater awareness. But um, I think the bigger things is twofold. I think it is cultural in terms of um, how aware students and maybe the rest of society is with regards to the importance to engaging politically. And I think it also has something to do with just the workload in school. But let me address the first one mm -hmm. first. Um, the, the cultural... Um, uh, uh, issue is, um, or actually, let, let me start with the with the uh, the the workload issue first. Sure. I mean, there's it's because that's a very pragmatic one, right? 
we as teachers have this tendency to tell our students that unless you're there 24-7 and you work until you're, you know, until you drop over, your project can't be any good. And you have to do perfect in studio and you have all these other assignments. So that is, and so here's the thing. That's partly true. If mm. you want to become a good architect, it does take forever, and it's very rigorous. Right. And because that's true, we simply have less energy left um, to pay attention to things. I mean, this is really um, uh, an, an issue that uh, that's a problem. It, being a good architect takes so much that it's very hard finding the time to to engage with um, other issues, right? Which which almost uh, comes back around to bite you, right? I mean, it's hard to be. It's also hard to be a good architect if you're not being like a, a good citizen and and kind of a, a real person, right? You can you can really easily lose sight of uh, of big of bigger things. Absolutely, and but there's another there's another problem with it because that culture that we have in school, which mm-hmm. is like you have to just work day and night actually undermines our self-understanding or our self-value. Yes. So what happens when you graduate? You go out in the world, and somebody has you know, a great not-for-profit, and they have a wonderful idea. I want to build a little workshop or a museum or a daycare. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. But they don't have any money. They're not really that well-connected. So they say, well, if you just give me that rendering, then you know, that'll help us. And I'll get... And what do we? What of all of us say? And I do this with a survey with in my seminar. I said, as a case study, like, what do you do? Ninety-seven percent of people say, yeah, of course, I drop everything and I do it. Mm-hmm. And so we get into this rhythm where we act in a way that is, in the short term, that's okay, but in the long run, that's yeah. against our own self-interest, yeah. and it it prevents people outside of the profession to recognize our true value because we always give it away. And so I, there's a thing that I teach or that I say in my students, if you want to do me one favor once you graduate here, please do not work for free. Right. Yeah, and, and, and I even wish that if students were working for free, it were for nonprofits, right? But so, <laughs> yes. so, so many are working uh, for free for, for profits, um, which is part of the problem. And also, like in, uh, unless it's a nonprofit, pretty much illegal nine times out of ten uh you can go check out uh department of labor fact sheets on unpaid internships it's a really uh difficult thing (laughs) um yeah i i mean i think i think that's that's all spot on um you know one of the other issues that was raised in the open letter was uh these kind of looking for clear guidelines on academic freedom and and what can be said in the classroom and what can't be said in the classroom. So can you, this is something that I've struggled with specifically as an adjunct at IIT and being of a kind of political mind. Yes. Um, So I'm I'm wondering if you can talk, talk about that. Yeah, I became very aware of this. I mean, a couple of days after the election, when I, the first time I was back at Crown Hall and I talked to some of my faculty colleagues about they asked me and said, hey, how's it going? What are you doing here today? And I said something like, you know, I really want to rile up people. I was thinking this was already all going, the, <laughs> the discussion. And without, uh, you know, in, in the next second, this colleague of mine says, well, no, you can't do that. I mean, we can't be political. And so all of a sudden it became very clear to me, like, oh, my God, we, I mean, so we have this huge issue that we should talk about. And we, we believe that we can't. 
So th this is in the open letter. I basically addressed it to our provost and said, could you please provide clarity with doing that? And it, it, this goes back to the, we've already talked a little bit about it, the difference between being partisan and being political. Mm -hmm. I, I look at partisanship today as a cancer that has befallen our society. Mm -hmm. It is really incredibly destructive. And just even because of that, there is no use or no sense in being partisan. It, you know, it's, it's clearly there's no middle anymore in American politics. And we don't understand each other. We all live, live in our echo chambers. And so um, that obviously doesn't work. And um, uh, I think the, if, we, if we are, that we have to talk about politics in school, however. I mean, there's, we cannot be good architects without being political. I've, just over these last days, I've sort of had another uh, insight, I guess, or a conviction, which is, you cannot be a good architect if you're not also a good activist. Right. An activist, you know, even when you work on a project, there's so much, there's so many stakeholders, people, money, the environment. I mean, it's enormously complex. And so we already act in this capacity every day. And then if you just sort of zoom out and you look at issues of the nation, of course it becomes political and we have to do this. And so... Um, uh, yeah, I think that's um, why in part of what I'm trying to do at IIT is actually now through this professional practice strand. Yeah. You know, we used to, in professional practice, we used to try to teach people how to write or read an RFP. Right. That is completely ridiculous. Maybe you can explain RFP. I think some of our listeners might not be architects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a request for proposal right. that comes from a client who looks to hire an architect. Yeah. And that is something you're going to learn or whatever. That is so technical and so on the fringes. I think professional practice for young architects should teach them how you act in the broader professional um, uh, environment outside of academia, how you try to convince or influence people, how you do all of these things. And in that sense... Um, I'm going to even going moving forward into next semester. I'm going to try to make the topic of politics in school much more front and center because in, just in talking with students, I think they are very interesting. They have reacted very strongly with the interest of that. I think they see the need for this, mm -hmm. and uh, so we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Now, so when you talk about uh, sort of bipartisanship. Um, as a, as a kind of cancer, I mean, do you think that, uh, like, how do, how do you approach this rhetorically, right? Because for me, that's, it's always difficult. Because uh, I, I think when folks sort of write off the other side as, as evil and stop taking the ideas seriously, even if you disagree with them, this is a kind of, like, uh, really, really bad, almost political strategy in, in a certain way, because you're just saying that this is a moral failing instead of maybe um, a one, a one about knowledge, a failure of knowledge, a failure of education, a failure of culture. Um, it's, it's not a matter of evil. Um, but that also means that take, taking someone seriously, taking ideas seriously, is not necess necessarily... Um, um, 
all about civility, right? It's or politeness. You can be, you can take someone's ideas seriously and, and be respectful of them without having to kind of be polite or, or a lot of these things that I think uh, we see getting getting folks into trouble and, and not really evolving, right? When you kind of have this like sort of Aaron Sorkin West Wing version of democracy burned into your brain, um, it can be kind of paralytic in terms of action. Uh, so I'm wondering if you if you can maybe speak to that a little bit. I think that you just brought up uh, morality, I guess, or like you know, as a moral failure if you don't understand the other side. And what I can tell you is that one of the, in a broader sense, there might be a significant silver lining in what just happened, mm-hmm. in that we now are discussing and looking at the situation in a way you know if the other candidate had won i'm not sure any of this discussion would even happen we would sort of think like yeah the the big issues things like climate change or whatever they're you know they're going to be taken care of but going back to your point about the the lack of being able to to talk to each other as maybe a moral failure they have just um in the last couple of weeks since the election come across research that jonathan Haidt um conducted Mm-hmm. And he and a group of people actually looked into the moral roots of liberals and conservatives. Mm-hmm. They've done this true research with um, with a whole number of people, and what they find is that there is a there's a, or they they say there is a basic difference. A liberal person is a person generally very open to experience and open to change. Whereas a conservative person is much more comfortable with the status quo, with institutions and everything set up in a certain way. And that generalization is then underlined by, they they sort of had five uh, moral uh, channels, let's say, or five basic underpinnings. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were harm, care, fairness, reciprocity, then loyalty as the third, authority the fourth, and purity, sanctity the fifth. And what they find in talking to people is that liberals basically have a two-channel morality. They really care about the harm care, Mm -hmm. you know, like you protect your baby or your, I mean, there's a very deep uh, empathy type component. And liberals are incredibly interested in fairness overall. Mm -hmm. And they say that's morality. That's how, that's the only criteria that we should look at in how the world works. Conservative have Conservatives have those two channels as well, but they turn out they're not quite as strong, mm-hmm. actually. And they also have these other three channels, like loyalty and authority and respect is as high as fairness mm-hmm. and harm care. And so this is scientific research that basically shows fundamentally different moral underpinnings or definitions of what morality is. And so we judge the world according to these different views. And to me, I think, to me, this is nothing short of breathtaking because I had never heard of this before. I mean, you can just find it on the Internet without a problem. But there there is research out there and there is knowledge out there that provides the kind of underpinning that I believe we now need more than ever. Mm-hmm. because the, the the regular media discourse hasn't done anything. It 
contributed to where we are at, I believe. <laughs> the way that we can't, you know, we have a person in our office who was going to go back for Thanksgiving to his family and celebrate with them like, it's a tra- and like they do as a tradition. He canceled his plans because he, said, because he said, I can't go back to Kansas and I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. I think this is, these are all signs that are very, very uh, scary and dangerous. We have to figure out a way how to talk to each other again. And if you, if you tend to sort of lean on the liberal side, we have to recognize the kind of bubble we, we live in. I mean, I happen to tend to that side. And I have become amazed by the size or the thickness of the bubble that I live in. And I'm sort of hopeful by some of this literature that all of a sudden now starts to pop up or that I've become more aware of that we can actually find more common ground. And, you know, in, in moving forward, I think it's actually a mistake. We should, we should talk about Trump as little as possible because, first of all, there's plenty of it already going on. But I think that's the wrong focus. I think we need to try to step back and figure out what are those commonalities that we have between different political convictions? And do we find ways to articulate them? And do, can we listen to them? And can we articulate certain common shared values that we can build from because, because the alternative doesn't work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good place to go to a break. And uh, Tom, you'll stick around with us. And we'll add in Catherine Darnstadt to the mix and keep the conversation going after a break. Thanks. Welcome back to Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and still in the studio with us is Tom Jacobs, and now we're joined by Katherine Darnstadt. How are Catherine, you? hello. So, Catherine, uh, Catherine, you are the principal of Leighton Design. I am. Um, maybe you can give yourself a little introduction, um, and, I, you know, I invited you specifically to talk about the Not My AIA stuff uh, hashtag. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, We've been talking about it all show, so we're looking forward to hearing what what the what the creator of this hashtag uh, has to say about these issues. Absolutely. So Leighton Design is my own architecture and urban design firm based here in Chicago, and we focus within um, the broader social impact realm of the built environment. And where that starts from is an understanding that buildings are one component of how the built environment gets created. And it's this process of building that we need to talk more and unpack more because that's really where the power of design is. It's There's the beauty of the final product of mm-hmm. architecture, but there's so much more power in the process of design that we need to understand further. And within the Not My AIA, that hashtag started out of this really strong, passionate response to the AIA statement in... Um, after the election, um, I felt that that statement was very weak, mm-hmm. and it wasn't um, the best uh, representation of what our ethics and values are as an architectural organization, what I sign off on mm-hmm. every single year, and what I felt as an individual. And so it started as, you know, here's this article, here's, you know, I'm in the midst of figuring out where space, place, time even exists for the next four years. And I see the statement that's supposed to represent me as a professional individual. And I put it out there because I didn't, it it, it existed for almost two days, two full days before I felt like it even got to me. So I like a statement got put out as a representative of an organization that I that um, I'm a part of, and I didn't even see it. 
Right. And so that was a disconnect first and foremost for me to see it by a third party once removed even on top of that. And so I put it out on our social media feed for the firm and said, you know, this is the AIA um, is pledging support for the potential of a few infrastructure dollars. And Mm -hmm. I called it spineless and I ended it with not my AIA hashtag, just kind of put it out in the world on a Friday morning and didn't really think it would get any traction. And I was very wrong <laughs> on that one. Sure. Yeah, yeah I think uh, Tom, uh, Tom and his organization wrote, wrote a statement Absolutely. in response to it. Uh, the Architecture Lobby, a group that I'm uh, mm-hmm. part of the leadership of, wrote a statement. QSpace wrote a statement. There was a, a, lot, of, a lot of really good and intelligent and uh, brave statements. Uh, you know, you, usually I, I wouldn't think um, uh, as kind of more of a traditional sort of like activist, I wouldn't think of a letter writing campaign mm-hmm. as being a kind of ultra-effective venue mm-hmm. for action. But in this case, it totally has been um, and prompted, well, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you can talk about that, mm-hmm. talk about some of the responses it's generated and some of the things that the AA has actually done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a second apology. There were four altogether. Apology, yeah, and a was, fourth apology. Yeah. And um, so this has been very interesting because I think in a way, there's these moments you have to take passion and emotion and put it into constructive action. And over the course of that, that past that week of from when the statement was made to when the fourth one was finally made, and there seemed to be some sort of concrete resolution moving forward. I think what uh, this, uh, the not my AIA illuminated was an extreme gap in between in not only institutionally within the organization of how did even a statement like this get past what should be traditional checks and balances of internal internal PR and communications review, executive board review, you know, and get put out just more as an individual putting out a statement rather than an organization putting out a statement is really where the main um, um, breakdown happened. And then looking at how that response built. Whereas I think all the letters that got put out and the statements were uh, a wonderful range from a very formal letter to um, very concise tweets from Kimmelman and Gold... Um, and Goldberg and and conversations on panels that were unscheduled to begin with, but bringing that topic to the forefront. So you have formal and informal working together. And now you see an organization of the AIA that was really unprepared to even handle that, right? Because right? they look at they look at um, commentary, response, and dialogue in a very formal sense. Right. And I think that was helpful to understand also where the members were positioned and where the future of membership may be positioned, sure. right? Because we're looking at you're looking at a challenge of two diverse points of view mm-hmm. in a very strong way. You're looking at the intersection of what the traditional architectural field has been trying to overcome. I mean, if you look at the Wikipedia page of Architect, it's like a black and white hand drawing of a guy at an easel from like the 1910s, <laughs> right? And we're trying to promote an organization and, and a discipline that looks more like me, mm-hmm. right? And I'm in very real life. I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. I'm, I'm two decades younger than the average. So, you know, how do we, you know, how do we reconcile yeah. those two? And I think all the pieces that came out. Yeah. And you know, what was really striking to me is that uh, because both Catherine and I actually mm-hmm. were, in, you know, active members of the AIA, mm-hmm. as we said before. But what really struck me is that there has been all this talk about repositioning of the AIA. And it was, I actually felt like that was, or I, I know it was a sincere attempt, but it was layers upon layers of questioning where the organization should go and how it should be structured and, mm-hmm. and how it operates. And what struck me is that through that one statement, mm. you sort of realized 
all this talk has not sunk in at all because right. you know, the idea of an inverted organization and participatory and so forth, and then this happens. And so I think that what I like about the statement or the controversy is now it's so directly out in the open. There's mm-hmm. no more hiding. I mean, it's now we're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. and I, ha- I have a tendency to be a little bit more blunt about how I presented everything moving forward. Um, I think the second most popular um, retweet out of the Not My IA that came out of the the firm was um, something along the lines, building on what you said, Tom, is that the A is willing to promote um, minorities, women, people of color, individuals with disabilities, Muslims, and all the advertising, but not willing to have our back. And I think that's yes. that's really what the the dichotomy was: is we're putting people very front forward in terms of your marketing, but when it comes down to the line is you weren't backing us in any way, shape, or form. And even when you compare previous statements from previous election cycles, there has been a much more concise and directed statements that have come out of the AIA as an organization from previous elections than the one that came out this election. Right. And, you know, my question that comes up out of all of this is, is the AIA really capable structurally of being a a real advocacy organization, the kind of advocacy organization that us in this room want it to be. Um, I I have a lot of skepticism there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think you've said um, that I think I think of it might have been you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that the AIA is first and foremost a kind of collection of like-minded businesses. It is. It is. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I think that's a it's a real problem. And and if you look at who the leadership of the AIA is, and I think I think always will be. Um, it's it's they 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 have a set of business interests, right? In the architecture lobby statement, um, that full disclosure I helped write, we 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 put. Uh, uh, Let me find it here. The AIA's rhetoric has always emphasized the importance of women and people of color to the architectural profession, but only as a product of their economic utility, the marketing, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, And now that the business proposition has changed, they want their hands on some of those infrastructure bucks, uh, disenfranchised communities are left in the cold. And, um, you know, that that I think um, sums it up, but maybe I, I don't know enough about... Uh, kind of the AIA's efforts on this. I mean, I've been to the Equity by Design conference mm-hmm. this past year and, and know about some of the amazing work that's going on there. But I, I, I still fail to see how it's going to trickle into the underlying structure of the organization yeah. and the fact that it's about business mm-hmm. um, and, and, and not about the people who work in those businesses. And I think what the, the problem that the AIA has, has is, a, is a probably a similar problem that other professional organizations of similar size probably have, right? We're an organization of business interests rather than personal interests, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a C6, it's not a C3, it's not a non-for-profit in the community organizing sense. However, we our member base of businesses are mostly businesses of individuals and small firms, five people or less. Whereas a firm like Tom's is more in the minority. It's only like 15% of the firms, whereas the majority of individuals, even by the AIA-owned firms uh, surveys, are very small firms, 10 or less. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile that, right? So you have members who are mostly individuals who lead their business by their individual passions and turn that into practice versus... Versus the larger organizations that could detach them 
themselves a little bit further away. So I think the AIA issue is something similar to the AIGA or within, you know, within graphic artists. And you saw that with the plant, like the American Planning Association came out with a statement after that that was much more strongly worded. Yeah. And it was directly in response where their members were saying, we need to make a statement. We need to make a stand. We need to talk about how there are inequities in the built environment that we have owned. We have to own that. That's a problem as well. But that as an organization, we want to move forward and be more equitable. We know that is a difficult Mm -hmm. journey for 90,000 members to go through and even a very reluctant one for some of them. Right. Yeah. And actually, you know, we I think the the, um, size issue that you're bringing up, Catherine, is is huge because in our efforts with Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change, there's for instance, there's a, a corollary, which is we can get small firms and medium-sized firms excited and signed up very mm-hmm. quickly. When we get to large firms, the issue is that every single one of them agrees with our issue. I have yet to meet an architect who doesn't say that we should take urgent action on climate change. However, due to corporate governance structures, and you know, if you, if you ask one of the big firms, it's not like I know people there and I have colleagues, but they have to now go through the board or whatever. And so very quickly you see the realities of power and decision-making structures and lack of ability to control the message. So they say, no, you know, this is wonderful. I wish we could be part of it, but we can't. And so the, the, that sort of tells you something about the challenge that we face with the size of the issue that we have, this is a this is a big deal, right? And my firm's only five years old, so I my firm existed in a comp- was formed in a completely political um, and uh, type of climate, um, and during the recession itself. So my point of view is much more. Um, I'm open to risk. In a mm-hmm. sense, maybe when I get to 10, 15, 25 years, I get more conservative as it goes longer because I'm worried about clients and offending them. But my clients are, you know, they, they share the same point of view right <laughs> sure. now. But again, points of views change. Exactly. You have to adapt as you grow. So how do you still have that same, you know, uh, incredibly activist and risk-taking mission in a firm as larger political contexts change? Or do you not have to because you're always fighting a, a larger fight of equity mm-hmm. and inclusion. Right. I mean, is, is the AIA even the place to be waging these battles? I mean, is 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 the is the uh, would it be more worth our time to build alternatives? I mean, I don't know that you have to pick and choose at mm-hmm. all. Um, it's more mostly a rhetorical question. I think you can do both. You should do both. Um, but but I'm wondering really if if maybe we're we're taking the Robert Ivey thing as a, as a really good moment to do some introspection, mm-hmm. but how much we should really sort of dwell on the AIA as part of the problem. And, and maybe I'm guilty of this myself because I, I talk about it a lot. I've talked about it a lot in the last couple of weeks. Well, and, I mean, in the public perception, the AIA is w- what architects are, right? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to decouple the AIA with understanding what a licensed architect is because the majority are part of that organization. Right. So in turn, while we could have... Actually, I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't. It's I, rising. It definitely is. There is a, a greater yeah. gap of individuals who are becoming law, architects but aren't joining the organization. And I'm seeing that absolutely within my peer group. So if I look at my other professors, other small firm owners, 
there are no AIA members there. Yeah, I'm not planning on ever joining. I mean, mm-hmm. once I get my license, but I, I think it's like right now hovering around 50% mm-hmm. of licensed architects are AIA members. I could be totally wrong on it's that. It's more than that. Someone I'm, fact check me. I'm going to try to convince you at some point, Kiefer, to <laughs> All right. reconsider. Fair enough. Because I take, a, I guess, a much more pragmatic or whatever you want to call it, the view that um, like this election and the uncertainty associated with it I happen to think that the level of organization, I mean, actually sort of building uh, strength in numbers is as, if not more important than like perfection of message. And so, you know, the of course, I'm, I'm sure you could build or if the three of us got together and started building a new AIA, we would come up with something great. But can you do it? Can you make this transformation quick enough? What do you lose in the battle? So my thing is the battle right now is directly in front of us with people who want to do unthinkable things with regards to the environment, which is my pet peeve. But there's many other issues. And so I'm just, I'm sort of calling for a bit of caution in trying to splinter up into all these different groups. And because of that, I think the AIA, as imperfect as it is, I do believe that they have that they can be changed. And the reason I say this is because the AIA, that is us, that is the members. And to the extent that we speak up and hold their feet to the fire, mm-hmm. I think it'll just accelerate that change that they have to face. And I, I, I agree with you. And I think there's a, a little bit of a shift that's happening where the members who happen to be um, architects who happen to be members of the AIA will find themselves that they could still lead and excel and and be prominent and influential without the need to have that happen within the AIA first. Yes, and I, I think guess. that's the big shift that's, that's going to start to happen. And that's also how maybe you move it forward because maybe the organization sometimes has to catch up yes. versus being the one leading. And there's a little bit of leapfrogging that's definitely happening now. And so we'll see how that grows. But I still think any professional organization needs to be disrupted at some point in time, needs to be right-tracked, especially one that says, you know, we have very strong ethical responsibilities yeah, to equity yes, and inclusion yes, in the built environment, so we have to put that forward every single time. Well, and I, th- I think that there's the idea of critical support, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of critical support is that organizations like the Architecture Lobby or, or, or any of the other ones that are kind of emerging, Progressive Design Network, um, that are presenting themselves as kind of alternatives uh, can absolutely do that, but I, I don't think it means that they will abandon the AIA altogether. I think they will still see it as a kind of important location for activism and um, you know a place where they can lend support to the elements that are doing things right and be critical. Um, so I, I think... Uh, it means that it's not exactly a kind of let's all get in the same boat and fight the same fight, but it's also not a, a, a pursuit of perfectionism in kind of thinking that's going to be kind of damaging and isolating. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in between, and to me that, that kind of feels right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, Catherine, if you can tell us, if you know anything about the resignation that just happened over at the AIA. Oh, from Scott? Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I just saw a headline, literally. I, I don't even know a lot about it. I don't know much either. I yeah. mean, he hasn't put out a public statement mm-hmm. moving forward. Um, I mean, it is at a glance saying that part of that decision-making 
was because of the response and the situation that led to MIA and how that kind of moved forward and whatever internally happened. You're also dealing with an individual who is just great across the board and has a massive amount of respect from, I think, many chapters, many members for really being able to tailor and be progressive within the organization. So whenever that statement comes out from him of really why the reasons he left, it could be, you know, it was 10 years and this was the straw that broke the camel's back, or it was really a mission mismatch of how he wanted to move forward. Right. That's up to him to say. Sure. And so I guess my, my next question, maybe my last question with the time we have, mm-hmm. is how, how do we move forward from here, right? So what, what's the plan of action? I mean, I, I think we've put a lot of things on the table and kind of hinted at some things, but moving, moving forward, what next? Yeah, my, um, maybe the biggest wake-up call to me is that we were, I feel like we were all asleep behind the wheel. Hmm. You know, the, the, the result of the election was a, a massive surprise. And as I was thinking about it, I always thought like, well, you know, let's say the president-elect gets elected, but the Senate will probably flip. Or, you know, it, it seemed like the constellation, the big danger right now is that there's such a concentration of power. Mm-hmm. You know, the checks and balances are like in limbo. And so um, I think what we have to do right now which is why we're meeting on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And we have to get organized and we have to figure out how to get ready because on January 20, when the inauguration happens, it could be the same day or three days later and statements are going to come out what they're going to do. I think we have to be ready, ideally together, if not together, individually in these groups and have letters written and uh, signatures already collected, and we have to go uh, on record right away and say, no, we do not agree with this. This is against our fundamental values as architects, and please don't do stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Catherine? And I'm more of a torch and pitchfork type of person just <laughs> in general. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that you have to look at this from a point of view of, like, this is the 100-day statement. What do we have to prepare for? How do we go about this at the level that we all feel comfortable comfortable with as individuals or organizations? And then we really have to think of, especially within the city of Chicago, I have an added layer of concern just because it's been talked about as a hellscape and as a quote, Mm -hmm. and then the example of a poor urban environment of people of color with massive amount of gun violence. So I'm very concerned about what happens within Chicago and within the work that we do within the city and how this impacts, you know, affordable housing to public space to funding to schools and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I, I've made my decision that I'm always, I've always been very hyper-focused within Chicago and working within this realm, mm-hmm. um, and maybe those statements have national resonance, um, but I'm, I'm, that's where my focus is, and maybe that does require us to become more political and become more active and engaged in parallel organizations that do work to advance some of the causes and issues that we're looking at as architects. Right, getting outside of architecture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, and I think uh, getting outside of architecture, that's maybe a good place to wrap things up. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having us. happy you were able to join us. This is WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio.